Today is a singing day, and we're going to be going through the first psalm in the Bible. The very first psalm in the Bible. It's in Exodus 15. Uh, We're starting in, uh, oddly enough, verse 1. Exodus 15, verse 1. What had just happened? Something a little incredible had just happened. A miracle. What kind of miracle? They walked across on dry ground through the Red Sea. Through the Red Sea, dry ground. Um, and then what happened? The waters came tumbling down. And the spider, no. Uh, um, the, the army got drowned. Pharaoh and his entire cavalry and uh, the, 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 um, the, uh, the, the, the chariots were just ground swatted by the water. And so they have this great panic by the sea, and that turns into great praise by the sea. See, panic and praise. See how that works? Baptist. Baptist thing. Okay, actually, I'm worshiper now. But anyway, so there's great panic by the Israelites, and then it turns into great worship. And we see that this worship in chapter 15 is led by Moses in verses 1 through 18, and then later picked up by his sister Miriam, 19 through 21. And this is the first recorded psalm of the Hebrew nation. This is their very first uh, communal, corporate praise of God. And it's fitting that this hymn of praise uh, be for redemption and deliverance. I mean, they're just coming out of Egypt. They've just been delivered through this incredible thing. And and Egypt's uh, economy is shattered. Their theology is shattered. Their... their, um, their, their army is shattered. Their status as a world power is now reduced to some some bodies washed up on the shore. And it's an incredible deliverance that their oppressors are now completely annihilated. And they haven't drawn a sword as a people. They got a staff and a guy with a long beard lead them in front. That's all they got. And of course there's God, right? So it's all of God's delivery, all of his work, all of this results in their redemption. And, and there are three stanzas to this, and at the end of each stanza appears the cry, O Yahweh, O Lord in the English, O Yahweh, to mark the stanza's conclusion. It, it, the whole thing is centered, we'll see, around the glory and majesty of God. And so uh, I'm going to read through it, <clears throat> and as I read through it, uh, what strikes you? All right? Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps 
congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil, my desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. You blew your wind, you blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your, holy, on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established, the Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. All right. As you read through verses 1 through 6, we'll start with the first stanza. What strikes you about this? What strikes you? What hits you? What are they praising? What are they saying? What is the content of their worship here? It's all to God. They're giving God the glory for everything. They're crediting Him and praising Him and acknowledging Him. It's God-centered. <clears throat> oh Lord, I thank You I am not like other men. Right? No, that's not it at all. It's focused on who he is, what he's done. Um, it's an opening uh, uh, of a doxology. This is all about God, uh, and it's only to God. And it's all the men of Israel, all the men of Israel saying this hymn. Um, and what's the reason they're singing it? It tells you immediately, like in the first couple of verses. What, what's, why are they singing it? What does it say? By doing what? What has happened? The horse and his rider thrown into the sea. That's just one horse, one rider? Who are they talking about there? He is, by extension, the whole army, yes. But principally, Pharaoh. Remember we talked about when they talked in, in, in that time... Pharaoh is the embodiment of all of Egypt. He's representing all of them. And they're focusing in on, well, that God has overthrown the Egyptian god. Right? 
And you'll see that refrain again later. Who's like you among the gods? How is Yahweh described here? Give me, give me some descriptive words. He's what now? Strength. Song Strength. Okay, I can't write that. Then. Strength. <laughs> song. Salvation. S O S. Is Lord Yahweh or is God Yahweh? Lord here. Really, I, I, I become less and less enamored with the English translation and the way they do the capital O, capital O, capital R, capital Just put Yahweh. Why not do that? Doesn't that make more sense? When you see the cat, all caps, that's a covenant name for God. It's Yahweh. I really wish they'd just do it. Come on, commit to it. It's okay. He's also called man of war. Man of war. That's the first time you really see God referenced as a warlike person. Man of war. And we see that, well, we'll get to this maybe a little later. We see that Again and again and again and again and again. The Lord is a warrior. Um, you see it in Revelation. Jesus shows up on a white horse and like ground spots him with a sword that comes out. Hey, Jeff. Ground spots him with a sword that comes out of his mouth. So you see this whole idea of God fighting for his people on behalf of his people. The man of war. What else? So very personal. This is my God and my Father's God. Very personal. Very good. I will praise him. There's a... Very... <sighs> okay. <laughs> Get me one. <laughs> it's gonna drive me nuts. Thank you. What else? <laughs> what else? On the fly repairs. <laughs> you might be a redneck if you put a. <laughs> Give me that shim, honey. I'll make a level. All right. So we have the man of war, glorious in power. Listen to that. Isn't that amazing? And power. Okay. Glorious in power. Um. He fights for his people against enemies. And they've seen it, right? They've seen his power. They've seen his majesty. And they're convinced and convicted by it, right? They're, oh, you brought us out here to die. Are there no graves in Egypt? And here they are convicted and convinced of the power and majesty of God to fight on their behalf. And it's this reason that Moses said God has caused him to rejoice I just don't want to sing God is my song what an incredible statement is he our joy is he whom we derive our joy our contentment does it rest in him alone have we seen him work Have we seen him redeem? Have we seen him save us such that he is our joy? He's our song. Look at verses 7 to 11. 
we have a general overview of what happened in 1 through 6. And now they move into more detail, resulting from the, the results of God sending out his fury. His fury. L- look at the verse 8 there. That, uh, that word blast in verse 8. Let's see, find it real quick. It says, uh, at the blast of your nostrils. Incidentally. Uh, nostrils are very, they're not very intimidating, are they? I guess it depends on if you sneeze. I was at work this, this past week, and the, and the guy that I office with had a head cold, and I thought he wasn't going to be there. I was just, hey, hey, Kevin. He comes in, and, and he gets in my office, right? I got nowhere to go. It's in my office. And immediately my throat's like, ugh. Starting to feel the tickle. Anyway, nostrils are not that intimidating, but they, but, and yet it's the 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 idea here is that God has a blast, this blast, literally the wind from his 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 nose, and this separates the Red Sea. They're attributing this incredible power to the minutest divine effort, and this dividing blow, this dividing wind. Is, it's, it ain't natural. It's not a natural origin. It's God's doing it. Just, <laughs> it's this thing. I'd make sure that I wasn't going to. It comes from the very nostrils of God. I'm backing up a little bit. This is why we have back row Baptists, because I spit and I, you know. So, all right. What happens to the waters? What happens to the waters? Okay, they stand up. They stand up in a heap, and this is like what you do in the goat barn when you pile everything up together. It's all in a heap. You put your rubbish all together, you set it on fire. It's wonderful, wonderful. All right, what else does it say? So that's that's something that's done to it. It's it's it's. Put it. <laughs> What's the next verse say? Not. Piled up. It actually stands up. I mean, literally, it would be stand up. So, okay, here it's passive. Then it's at attention. Like a monument It, it, it is the idea here. It stands up. It piles up. Um, the water's piled up. The floods stood Oh, it does say stood up. I love the ESV. It, stu- it says stood, uh, stood up in a heap, like, like a monument, like an Ebenezer. Um, and then it says, the deeps congealed in the heart of... Of the sea. Now, that's odd. God's blast of his nostril apparently has some gelatin in it, and it, and then it's congealing. What is he trying to show there? Congealed. They're in the midst of the sea. These rebellious Egyptians. Is there escape? Yeah. I'm trying to think of something that would be com- com- comparable to that. And I, I can't think of anything. Anyway, anyway, so this is the idea here of it being 
solid, yet water. Think of that in your mind if you can. This is, they're trying to give language to what they've just seen. And when it all comes crashing in, the Egyptians are in congealed water. They're at the bottom, and they can't get to the top. God is doing not only this miracle of parting it, but in their language, it seems like he's done something different with the very nature of water itself. So that there's no possible way for them to escape the futility of fighting the fury of God is expressed in this hymn. The waters swept up like trash. It's a passive thing. Then they stand up like a monument. Then it is a thickening. The idea of this congealing is like the curdling of cheese. The curdling of cheese. The Egyptians come out confident in victory. They're ready to get their swords wet on Israelite blood, right? They are hungry for battle. And so, it's, but it's the, it's the smallest expense, a blast, a wind from his nostril, the smallest expense of divine energy by God, which utterly destroys them, and it leads Moses and the men of Israel to say, who is like you, O God? Who is like you? In verse 10, you see the waters reflect the mighty character of God. He, he is using the water to show his majesty and his mind. And again, that second stanza concludes like the first with this adoration of Yahweh. The majestic God is the focus of both of those stanzas. All right. Now, what result does that have? Verses 12 through 18. What, what happens, not just among the Hebrews and the Egyptians, but there's something else that goes on. What is that? Anybody else find out about this? Somebody else learn about this whole congealed water stuff? Everybody else who says Philistia, Edom, Moab, Canaan, sorry, not Canaan, uh, they, they all heard of it and are terrified. Yeah, I think so. I mean, he just put them all in jello at the bottom of the Red Sea and with a, so, what is significant about the nations that are listed here? This act by God has a ripple effect among the pagan nations. God, uh, in his unfailing love, is going to lead them into the promised land, his, his holy abode, and that, and that actually anticipates the temple, so we might get to that sometime. But the order of the nations that are listed here, where's Philistia, do you know? On the coast. Where are they hidden first? I mean, you're going to the coast, right? And what does it say about Philistia? They're the first to hear. Uh, and then it goes to who? who, who and Philistia is like the sworn enemy of Israel for a long time. I mean, David deals with Philistia. The chiefs of Edom. The chiefs of Who's Edom? Esau's kids, descendants. And they push back against Israel coming back into the territory. But they hear about this. And they're a little bothered by it. 
What about Moab? Who's Moab? Remember when Abraham was traveling with his, uh, was it nephew? His name was Lot. Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot says, I'll take the fair land. He goes down and lives in Sodom. God grounds what Sodom but saves Lot. Turns his wife into some kind of spicy thing. And, and then they, <laughs> Lot goes. Mm, salty. salty. Um, Lot goes into the hills. And um, there's some wicked things done with his daughters, and then they each have a son. One is Moab, one is Ammon. And Moab becomes a nation. The Ammonites also are a nation. Um, Moab uh, actually resists Israel pretty pretty heavily. Uh, Remember that story about the talking donkey? Where Balak the king calls uh, Balaam. I want to say Barak, but it's not. Yeah. Ba- it calls Balaam uh, to come and... Sorry. Okay. Uh, so Balaam comes to curse them, but it's at the behest of the Moabite king. And, and that's... that's. But why, why would he bother to do that? Why would he have somebody come and curse this nation? He's heard about, they've heard about, they're, they're uh, familiar with the stories of Egypt and the, 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 the Red Sea and the plagues and all this and they're freaking out that's the next in line uh, Philistia, Edom, Moab and then and then where's the last who's the last nation all the inhabitants of where Canaan, Canaan. why is it in this order that's the trap that's the itinerary for the trip they're about to take what is the point of that what is the point of yeah, what is the point of that Look at what I've done here. I'm not just pulling you out of slavery. I'm setting you on the path. I've already got our way going and I've already prepared the way for us to go. They're fearful of you. Don't be afraid of them. I've already conquered this for you. Their hearts are trembling and terrified by the mere blast of my nostril. Yeah, I'm not here. I'm not here. Yeah, terror and dread is the idea. Terror and dread is it, is it because of Israel so great? I mean, because they because because they've got really strong shepherd stabs. That's woo-hoo. no. It's all because of what God has done by the mere shaking off of the Egyptian army into the bottom of the congealed sea. Like Egypt sunk like a stone, so will these enemy nations. They are like stones. So what does verse 17 anticipate? Look at verse 17. That they will arrive in Canaan safely. You're going to be there. It's going to happen. You're going to make it. There is no obstacle that God has not already prepared a way of victory for you. He's going to... Do what he said he's going to do. Not through your self-effort, but because of his covenant faithfulness. Right? Is that what he's saying? Further into the future, when God uh, establishes Israel and Canaan, the, the Hebrews will build a sanctuary there to worship God. And, and this is referring 
ultimately we see the culmination of this in, in the, in, to Mount Zion, where the temple will reside. But it also speaks eschatologically. There's your $10 word. What does verse 18 say? So it ends as it begins, doesn't it? God being glorified. God is to be praised for what he did in effecting a mighty deliverance for what he was doing then in preparing the land for conquest and for what he will do in his eternal reign. And apparently the men singing affects the women. What do they do? Okay, now I want you to picture this. This is helpful? Yes. Um, I want you to I want you to think about this Um, Moses at this time is probably 80 right we we charted it out we did a schematic Um, Aaron is probably about 83 because he's a little older Miriam how old do you think she was at this time when he was born born, she's probably 11 or 12 because she's talking to Pharaoh's daughter about, hey, I can get you a nursemaid for... So she's at this time, what time? How old are you? 90. 90. She's 90. 90 years old. She grabs a tambourine. <laughs> you think, visualize this. I don't, I don't know what's going on here, but somehow this 90-year-old woman gets a skip in her step and wants to start beating on a drum and singing the refrain at the beginning. We'll sing unto the Lord, for he has triumphed victoriously. The horse and his rider is thrown into the sea. And Miriam is the first woman in the Bible to be called a prophetess. She's got some leadership authority in the wilderness wanderings, and she's probably 90 here, and she takes up this tambourine. We call it tambourine in English. It's really some kind of frame drum. I don't know what that is. I haven't seen, many musicians may have seen some of these weird instruments. It's framed, a framed drum. I don't think it's like the marching band drum, because she's 90. I think it's this little thing. But they're and all the women do this. They're, it says, and Miriam answered them. So we got this antiphonal kind of thing. The men are singing, and the women are doing the refrain back and forth. There's this great celebration of praise and thanksgiving and rejoicing. They had just seen something amazing and been saved out in certainty of death, zero chance for victory. What are we waiting for? They, they've been saved out of this. And this foreshadows the victory of God's redeemed at the end of time. Turn to Revelation, oddly enough, chapter 15. Look at verse 1. We'll go through 4. Then I saw, this is John speaking, I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. Uh, D.A. Carson seems to think that sea of glass could also be sea of congealed water. (laughs) Just kind of throw that out there mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass. They're on the seashore here, the sea of glass. With harps of God in their hands, and they sing the song of Moses, 
the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. In a very real sense, this thing that actually happened at the seaside, on at the Red Sea, these things happen for you upon the ends of Asia, written down for your instruction. This happens to foreshadow what will happen when the redeemed of God are on the seashore again, looking at the great redemption that God has finally finished because his wrath will be finished. When his wrath is finished, what's left? The immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus for eternity, forever and ever and ever. And it calls forth praise communally in Revelation 15. They're, they're um, singing all these hymns, the singing the song of Moses among uh, these other hymns of adoration. It is a picture of the church rejoicing in God's redemption, praising him for who he is. As Israel moves from the scene of redemption, this, at the end of the sea, to a, a communion of praise, and then on to the promised land, so the church is moving from the, the redeemed by the blood of Christ, the, the, the communal praising that we do now, and ultimately uh, by the sea in Revelation 15, and finally, we'll be receiving uh, its eternal inheritance. The church receives her eternal inheritance, which is Christ. 1 Peter 1, four says, To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. What a great thought, isn't it? When it's all wrapped up, and it's done, and the junk that we've done, the junk that's been done to us, the junk that, that we have to work through and fight against our nature of sin that we wrestle with even now, even though we've been given hearts that don't have to do that anymore. We still go back to stuff. It's done. The wrath's been poured out on Christ. The wrath's been poured out on the unredeemed. All that's left is we will be made like him for we will see him as he is and the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ forever and ever and ever. And what a great thing to hope for. Now, he says he's getting them to Canaan. Does he get them there? Eventually. Eventually. Exactly. As great as this song is, yes? That's what I wanted to ask you. Like, is it because there were several years between one event to another that they were gotten? Or is it because they were just very discontented? What's the very next passage we read? The bitter waters. With this song, there's also a warning. Right? Um, you can be relieved about something that hasn't happened. How you've been saved out of the consequences of something you set up. And you have this great emotional gush of, of uh, praise God, I don't have to go through this. <laughs> I don't have to deal with this. He saved me out of this. And then, uh, there's a statement, I think it's profound, one of the most profound statements I've ever heard. Wherever you go, there you are. Circumstances can change. 
environment can change, but the discontent in our hearts is still there. Is Christ enough? Is he enough? I can sing, I can have the thing, I can be all, we can get tambourines, and I feel like I'm 90, but I'm still going to change. We can have all that. Is he enough? When the high wears off from the Pine Cove weekend, is he still enough? Or when the rubber meets the road, and, and I, I, I feel the panic because I, I want this life, and the only way I can see to get the, the house, the car, the hot wife, and the 2.5 kids is to do this rather than be patient and wait for what he's doing and be content with who he is. We trade him for lesser things by rushing what we want. Remain in him. Is he your song? Is he your song? Is he your grounding for joy? Don't trade him for lesser things. Any comments? That's just the thing. I mean, they saw the plagues. They saw his power. And the minute their circumstances look bleak, they just start grumbling and they forget. And then he has to do this other amazing thing. And they praise him and they worship him in their own mountaintop. And then things start to look bleak again. And they forget. And we do that so often. And we just we need to keep reminding ourselves. We need to be proactive. We can't just sit back and expect to do right on our own because we never will. We need to stay at the foot of the cross. <clears throat> Remember what's happened there. Be awed by what's happened there. All right. Um any, any other comments? It's 10.05, and it, it may actually be a, a, a miracle day for which you can rejoice that I'm actually letting us out early. Yes, ma'am. In your personal opinion, do you ever think that God is tired of, of you know, having to show some miracle for someone to believe in him? Or to believe in his power? Or... I, I, um, how do I answer that? There's a difference between saying, I'm thirsty, have you brought me out here to die? And saying, I trust you, but I'm thirsty. Does that make sense? There's a difference in, um, I'm thirsty, so I'm going to make this compromise here so I can get some water. And not trust you. And put myself in situations that are um, going to not <laughs> draw me to Christ, not uh, uh, to take me away from being holy as He is holy, which is a command of ours. And saying, God, you know my frame. You know I'm made of dust. Be my salvation and my song in this instance, in this moment by moment, trusting Him. That's different than complaining because I'm thirsty and it's God's fault and, and he's not a good God because I'm thirsty. 
because I don't have what I want, because I don't have the, you know, the Dodge Charger. Yeah. But the other thing to consider here too is that this was God's plan from the beginning. Mm -hmm. I mean, He's He's rescuing them, but He's leading them through the desert, right, where there is no water, right, and there is no food, right. And so this is this is His plan. I mean, we we talk about oh well, I, God promises Canaan, and we're going to get Canaan. I want Canaan now. You know, I want it. I want my best Canaan now. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, exactly. And isn't that our culture? The culture is, um, I, I want the house that my parents and grandparents have now, and I and I want, uh, and so if I can get this person to marry me by whatever means, then then I will be. I mean, that's worth a hundred thousand right there. That'll just come. That'll just happen, and everything will be normal, right? That's the culture. We went to. I'm telling too much. We went to Good Goodwill yesterday. <laughs> Because we we were we did it. It reminded me of growing up in Pasadena. Um, we went to we went to Goodwill and. So glad to be out of Houston. Anyway, uh, and 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 what struck me, because I do these three questions with every situation now. What struck me was um, was how many young women were in that place, uh, not married. Baby in arm, baby on the way, and I'm wondering, okay, because I didn't see a ring on my finger. <laughs> Just swollen fingers from all the babies? I don't know. Maybe it was enveloped by the swollenness. I don't know. In my, in my perception, not so much. But I, just, I wondered, okay, did they really think this was going to make life better? And it's sad to me, because that's the pervasive idea of the culture. Um, this person will make me whole. This relationship will make me whole. What? If I do this, we get in this situation, everything will be all right. Well, now you're just, you know, two poor people with a baby, and it's it's a sellout i think a lot of times to to trade contentment and thankfulness they were thankful here until they got thirst thank god i have a bottle of water until the circumstances change and then they're no longer thankful god's evil because he hasn't given them what they wanted immediately rather than growing with him through the desert um putting down the the needs of the body and the, uh, the desires of the heart and focusing on who he is and what he's done, which is where he's taken them. I mean, you think, like you said, I mean, he planned the trip. He even told them the outline: Philistia, Edom, Moab. I don't think there's a well through there. <laughs> I mean, they know where they're going, but there are lots of bitter trees. I don't know. I understand. Anyway, so what? Yeah. I'm going to say a joke though. We should make bitter Dasani so that people are thankful for normal water. <laughs> See, we can we can help them. I tell you, we're, we have bitter goat milk. Is that close enough? Sorry, I should have. That's okay. Open up a can of worms. Did you apologize before you said the truth? Yes, I did. That God raises a immediate generation out of this generation that is mongrel. Right. That's not something. That ain't natural. 
Usually parents infect their kids. Talk to Nathaniel about that. Parents infect their kids. He told... I didn't tell you this. He actually... Um, he actually said something. He, he actually said something to Audrey that I had said to her ten minutes before because I was kind of mad at her. What were you thinking, or something like that? And he said to Audrey, "What were you thinking?" You know, oh my god! Oh, that's not good. That's not a good thing. Um, anyway, neither here nor there. Confessions yeah, god, by Kevin Ryan. God is ultimately faithful because it says uh, that um, he will bring to his abode yeah. I will be their God they will be my people this is the promise and he's faithful to do it in spite of he'll do it with his people these people didn't make it because again they traded the glory of God for lesser things again and again and again they proved themselves not to be those who were grounded in the joy of God ultimately of Christ all right. Any anything else? I said one. Sure. Sorry, no, it's okay. Um, to expand on what Colby said about the next generation and so on, um, God has has recorded this for us mm-hmm. so that we don't have to live in Egypt in slavery for four hundred and thirty years right. and escape and go through the bitter water and the bad meat and all that kind of stuff right. to get through it. We can read about it and hopefully by the divine Holy Spirit gain the same lessons that they have because He's recorded it for us. That's so the that's hope. A blessing to us. That's the hope. <laughs> that's the hope. How many times do I go back to Egypt? How, how many times do I get into a situation and I panic and fear and 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 want to manipulate the circumstances so that I can get out of, you know, my face against the sea and my back against the Egyptian army, and not trust um, that that He is going to be both my salvation and my song. I, it, again, your circumstances may change. It may be different than, than very stark here, but but our responses to it of, of manipulating things, trying to orchestrate our own salvation in things, um, it's very, very... This just reflects the human heart, where we are. And, and we should not be a part of that. He's calling us to be more than that. All right. It is now 10, 12. So I'm going to pray. Father, I confess that I don't get the idea of biblical joy. I don't understand what that really looks like. I know it's not being happy, because happy fades, and happy can be manufactured. But I, I, I wonder what it really looks like to live as if you were my song, my ground for rejoicing. I think we get glimpses of it, but I don't know that we really get it. Would you, by your spirit, fall on us? Teach us the meaning of joy, of contentment, of thankfulness in who you are and what you've done. So that we don't shuffle around from one pile 
of junk to another, replacing you for lesser things. Graphically, in, in the Proverbs, you say, as a dog returns to his vomit, so a fool to his folly. God, I fear that some of us get a taste for vomit. I pray that we push through these lesser things to taste and see that the Lord is good. God, help us to, to understand and to, not just with our heads, but emotionally be redeemed to, to love you with our, our affections and our heart so that we're not drawn to damaging relationships. We're not drawn to putting work above uh, a time and, and, and with you, that, that we're not drawn to spending our money in ways that, are, uh, that, that, that feed our egos and feed ourselves uh, in, in, in excess, but that are poured out to meet the needs of your people, to be a blessing to those around us, to, to love um, to love people in a way that honors you. You've called us to something radically different than what we see on TV. And I fear that sometimes our heads are so enmeshed in the false visions of our culture that we forget the reality that's in Christ. And I pray that you, by your Spirit, teach us to be joyful, thankful, grounded in your nature and your work as revealed in the Bible. It's revealed in Scripture by, by the mouth of your Spirit. Father, help us as a community become a means of grace toward that maturity. That when we see each other or when we feel it happening to ourselves, that we'll go to each other and confess our sin that we're not finding our joy in you. That we may be admonished that we may be encouraged, that we may be instructed to seek you first and your kingdom and all the things that our heart desires will be changed to meet your desires. Delight ourselves in you and you give us the desire of our heart, which is you. Teach us to live there, Father. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.